I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. This week I'm talking to Lale Khalili, a professor of Gulf Studies at Exeter University, whose most recent book is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Her most recent piece for the LRB takes a steely look at the development finance industry, which is caricatured by its right-wing opponents as woke capital, and is epitomised by the figure of Arif Nakfi, a private equity multimillionaire and ardent global free marketeer. The piece is a review of three books, The Key Man, How the Global Elite Was Duped by a Capitalist Fairy Tale by Simon Clark and Will Lounch, Icarus, The Life and Death of the Abraj Group by Brian Brivati, and Our Lives in Their Portfolios, Why Asset Managers Own the World by Brett Christophers. Hello, Lalian. Thank you very much for joining me again. Hello, Tom. Nice to see you. So before we get into the particulars of Arif Nakfi's case, um, perhaps we could talk a bit about this idea of, in inverted commas, woke capital. But is it a real thing or is the idea of capital being put to work in the interests of social justice an illusion or even a contradiction in terms? I would say it's a contradiction in terms depending on how you define social justice. Um, So I think it's important to start by saying that the title woke capital, I don't buy into the idea that somehow there is such a thing as woke capital and then there's unwoke or regular mainstream capital. I think Quinn Slobodian recently just put out an, an article somewhere where he was talking about different sectors or different segments of capital that take different positionalities towards the way in which capital is supposed to work in the rest of the world. And he specifically uses the case, I think, of uh, steel capital um, and uh, the fact of the steel business, the steel industry in the US takes a position that is very supposedly anti-woke, um, as would, for example, I would imagine coal or oil would take those positions. And what makes them unwoke um, is the fact that they are industrial industries. They're very much against um, internationalization of capital, or at least they're very much against their turf being internationalized by capital. They're quite happy, for, for example, for American business to go elsewhere. And they deploy a kind of a nationalist language um, in order to protect their turf, protect their bases uh, and spaces and milieus of accumulation of capital. And then the term woke capital has emerged. And and as I explain in the um, piece, it it covers all manners of sin in the the minds of those people who like to call it that. And it goes from, for example, capital being put to use in uh, social goods, allocation of social goods, uh, to, for example, capital 
uh, or capitalist businesses uh, doing things for their employees, which the right wingers look down upon. So doing things for their women employees or doing things for their gay employees or trans employees. And so that's also called woke capital. And this kind of a, a contention between these sectors of capital, which is you know strongly nationalizing um, versus an internationalizing capital that tries to appeal to the sort of the liberal uh, sentiments of the consumer base and or make money through areas which are considered to be usually some form of social good, for example, healthcare. This contention is at the heart of the naming of some capitalist woke capital. I don't buy into that terminology, but I do think it is interesting that RF Nagvi's businesses would have for example, have gotten that moniker um, when Narve was a capitalist par excellence whose aim really was to make money for himself and for the investors in his funds. Um, and if it had a sheen of do-gooding, then all the better. Yeah, I mean, in that, the use of the, we should perhaps say that the use of the term woke, the way it's used sarcastically as, as a term of contempt by the right wing, I mean, that use of the word is itself a an act of racist appropriation, isn't it? Because woke is a, Absolutely. you know, there are recordings of Ledbetter using the word in, you know, the 1930s. It's a yeah. African-American vernacular term that's being... And in fact... Yeah. Africa, there, there, there are um, uh, black American theorists who say essentially the use of woke by a lot of the right wingers is where they, in, in another occasion they would have used the N-word. Now they can't use the N-word and so they use woke. And in fact, if you actually in your mind you do that little switch whenever you read the term woke capital, it becomes clear that it's actually not too far off because, of course, the, the use of the N-word was also went hand in hand with sort of natalist, protectionist towards, you know, white natalist. Uh, kind of policies. So very much, it, it very much had the, the, the racist and racializing uh, impulse very much had a gender element to it too. And so you find that that terminology that is being used right now um, to apply to both questions of gender and race um, definitely uh, and entirely fits in a long line of racist terms that, are, that have been used um, across you know, the 20th century, in order to uh, isolate, mock and devalue certain forms of speaking, thinking, writing, etc. So perhaps using a, a different terminology, there is an argument against uh, do-gooding businesses, or as you call them, or businesses which appear to be doing good from the left. Or one argument which uses instead terms such as greenwashing or pinkwashing, the point being that what the right sees as a Capitulation to wokeness is a is a facade for rapacious business as usual. Yes, I mean I think there is a huge element of that. I mean, what if one goes to, for example, any pride parade in any of the big uh, cities uh, in Europe or North America, you'd see you see an element of this pink washing where f- f- every single corporation is printing out you know rainbow flags and is desperately trying to have a presence there. That's you know from the extremely cynical uses of uh, a kind of a righteous um, front. 
uh, to, to actually things that do benefit, you know, their employees, for example. So Apple, the, the big corporation, you know, whose factories in uh, Asia and elsewhere are exploitative nightmares, nevertheless was one of the first companies in the US, for example, to extend healthcare and other kinds of employee benefits to its, um, to the gay partners of its employees. So, um, and, and I think what is, what is really interesting is that all of this, whether it's a cynical, you know, uses of the queer people or women or whatever, all the way to providing services to their employees, which you would expect that they do so in order to keep their employees happy, uh, is then lumped together as some some kind of a, as, some, as something that the right wing criticizes. But I think it's also important to recognize for us that come from the left and are doing a critique of this, is that there is always self-interest at stake here. It's not that capital is do-gooding in any way whatsoever. It is that there is a benefit to doing what it needs to do. Everything from, as you know, from, as I said, ensuring that they get the best of their employees by providing them with the absolute best perks that they can, to using those uh, symbols that benefits them, so that the rainbow flag, because they know their consumer base is actually quite uh, amenable to that, um, all the way to things like, uh, for example, portraying the best of the athletes in their advertisement, as Nike does. And so many of the best athletes, okay, happen to be either women or black or whatever. And so that also is, again, it's advertising. So it's important for us on the left to recognize that there is an impulse of self-interest in there. It's not about altruism. It's not about do-gooding. Um, it really is about uh, another means of extracting value from images, from discourses, from uh, words, from uh, representations that, that benefit them because the market likes it, because the consumers, citizenry, people, th those who have money to spend like this stuff. But I suppose if we're to separate for a moment the intentions from consequences, that you, you can still say that they're doing it to make money. But if the, one of the consequences is that people in America who otherwise wouldn't have health insurance or good dental insurance do, then that is a good thing in a small way I mean there's obviously a larger question of well why doesn't everyone get free dental care anyway but given that <laughs> that's a very long way off these ameliorative effects uh, are a good thing I think it's important to acknowledge that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not so much of a um, sort of a Stalinist <laughs> to say, no, absolutely, everybody has to have, you know, their teeth falling out of their heads, awaiting for the moment at which the utopia of free dental care for everybody arrives. Um, I do think that these ameliorative factors are really quite important. But I also do think that at the same time, the effect of those is that they establish and reproduce a kind of a discourse, which I think is really important to recognize or a kind of a vibe, if you will, in which the effort to actually struggle for free healthcare for everybody, let's put, set aside dental care, which was one of the first things Margaret Thatcher got rid of in this country, um, f free healthcare is it should be a right should be a basic right of everybody it is simply 
I mean, it's the the only way that we're all going to survive, right? And so I think that in in a sense, that the ameliorative effect is important in the short term, but it its long term effect could be that it actually um, uh, makes it very much more difficult to arrive at a public that is struggling for, that is mobilizing for, and that is willing to fight for uh, a public good that should be publicly funded and that should be available to everybody, regardless of whether or not they're employed by a nice employer or not. Exactly. So how does the the rise and the fall of RF Nagfi relate to all of this? Arif Nagbi is a really interesting character. And I think that uh, this comes across in the two books written about him. Uh, The uh, Clark and Louch book uh, certainly goes into a great deal of detail about what kind of a background he has had. And and, and of course, it doesn't stint uh, on on explaining how clever he is and what a good deal maker he is. Um, One of the things that everybody keeps mentioning, and I did a bunch of research on Nagbi um beyond sort of the, the 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 two books that I read and one of the things that everybody keeps mentioning absolutely everybody who ever interviewed him in his you know in in the in the years in which he was being fated by all the business magazines and journals is the fact that for example he in the grammar school he went to in Pakistan they he picked up on Shakespeare and he can he can recite entire uh, passages of Shakespeare from the heart and in fact it's something that he does a little bit competitively, but with with a great deal of pride. And I think in part, it is because he is Shakespearean in his ambitions. Uh, He's a larger than life character, and that comes across in in all of the books. And I think in some senses, those larger than life characters, particularly coming from the background he is, and then sort of making it through the ranks of capital to sit on the stage uh, of World Economic Forum, so that to, to the elite of the global capital, requires that kind of a Shakespearean ambitions, uh, unscrupulousness, uh, um, and uh, intelligence, actually. And if not intelligence, if not intelligence in the sense of book smart, but in the sense of being able to read a situation and being able to to have a kind of a business sense about things, um, or at least to be able to uh, get people to buy into your business sense. I'm, I'm here thinking of Elon Musk, who in his management of Twitter has proven himself deeply stupid. But nevertheless, he seems to have a kind of a business intelligence that allows for banks to keep bankrolling his businesses. So I think there's, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. But Nakvi actually does seem like an interesting book smart kind of figure as well. He seems well read. He seems really interesting. And what he started off was essentially by being a very good deal maker. And he was advised to go into private equity because that is where your good deal making abilities and your sort of um, uh, foresight in being able to see what is coming into the future could actually benefit you greatly, but also benefit your investors. So what private equity is, and I think I should probably explain this just in case your um, readers haven't read this, um, private equity is essentially a set of funds in which a bunch of private 
private investors invest money. Um, the, the reason that the private investment element matters is because when you have private investors uh, investing money rather than a fund going to the public, i.e. being listed in a stock market, is that the requirements for reporting are far less stringent. So if you have a uh, if you have something, if you have a company that is listed on the London Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange, uh, there are financial authorities in these countries which require you to every year report on what you've spent money on. There are regulations around, for example, the pays of your uh, CEOs and others. And there are all sorts of other forms of scrutiny that happens that sh- you know, shareholders do. There are, there are annual audits by uh, big audit companies which need to be public. Whereas if you have private equity, the privacy um, of of that investment essentially insulates um, uh, the companies from further outside scrutiny, whether that is by the SEC or various other financial authorities in a country or by financial reporters. And so private equity is something that has emerged really, it started emerging in the 1980s. Gordon Gecko in Wall Street was a private equity guy. Um, KKR, which is very famous, um, was one of the first private equity businesses. Michael Milken was a private equity guy. And what these guys, uh, Michael Milken, who was done in for fraud. And what these guys sort of get engaged in was they collected funds, they set up funds in which investors poured money, and then they used these funds to invest in businesses that weren't functioning too well. And they, quote unquote, turned them around. Now, what the turning around of these businesses often meant was that you sort of broke these businesses for part. You very often, or the the vast majority of the time, let go of huge numbers of the employees. You cut off a whole lot of different kinds of functions of that business. And then you sold it on for a great deal of profit um, because, because of course, the, the ways in which corporate pricing is established is a kind of a magic, right? It is a self-reinforcing, self-reproducing system where uh, analysts tell you how much something is worth on the basis of how it looks. So if you've cut off a bunch of employees that is part of sort of the Bible of good capitalist management. If you have reduced the payroll, then you must be a really good manager. And therefore, that gives you a little gold star. Therefore, the analysts give you a better rating. Therefore, you're you're valued better. I mean, I'm simplifying and caricaturing. But basically, this is not too far off from the kind of process that happens. And a lot of the private equity investors tend to take uh, investments from big hedge funds. Now, hedge funds often are things like our pension funds, um, and they tend to have a lot of uh, liquidity, a lot of cash that they can invest. And so they, a lot of the time, give this money to the hedge funds, and the hedge funds use them. So in a way, our pensions we end up being invested in a process that is rapacious, even in the spectrum of capitalist rapacity. <laughs> so uh, because it is so ruthless, because it does require cutting off employees, because it does mean, uh, you know, entire functions are cut off and businesses are broken up. And and Nekvi entered this business. He was very, uh, even when he wasn't a very 
famous person. He was very capable of bringing in lots of money from different kinds of investors. People trusted him. He was able to uh, get uh, local, regional investors, uh, some of the ruling families, some of the Middle East capitalists to invest in his funds. And he essentially went in on lots of businesses where he went in, for example, to Spinney's grocery stores. Um, and, and what was interesting for me reading the books that I was reading was that I was coming at a lot of the stories that were appearing in these books from a Middle East uh, hit, hit remembrance, memories of the kinds of events. So, for example, he bought Spinney's, which was a big grocery store across the Middle East. And he made it much more efficient and he, you know, uh, divided it into bits. What I remember is that about 10, 15 years ago in Beirut, there were huge attempts by Spinney's workers to, to mobilize and the union organizers were being fired um, like wholesale. And so, so there's, there's an element of the story that is not often appear in thinking about how private equity turns businesses around, which is what happens to the employees of those businesses. So Nervis begins with Spinney's, um, does a really good job with a uh, logistics company called Aramex, which is Jordanian, and then uh, buys Karachi Electric, which is a utilities company in Karachi, which was having a lot of problems because it wasn't producing electricity. Um, and Karachi Electric was one of the reasons for his downfall, or at least in the story that Brian Bravati says, it is, the, it is the reason for his downfall. But he also, towards the end of his uh, sort of the high-flying bits of his career, he was also collecting funds to invest in hospitals and other kinds of healthcare in Africa, um, uh, the, the whole continent of Africa. And um, he, what he was doing was essentially he was looking at a continent in which there was a young population, grow, uh, growing economies, um, there, there was uh, major uh, economic processes that were taking place with China coming in and in, engaged in extractive, extractive industries, the, the, you know, their banks grow growing, essentially proliferating throughout um, the continent. Um, essentially, there is a, a population that is growing and it has disposable income. And therefore, often a lot of the, that disposable income is spent on healthcare. And so healthcare is actually very good business. It's a huge business, in fact. And we've seen that with COVID also. And so he decides to invest in healthcare. And so Another story, so it's not Karachi Electric only that results in his downfall, but it's also his investments in these um, health industries. And if you want, I can go into more detail about those. So how did it all come crashing down? What, what brought Arif Nakvi's capitalist fairy tale to an end? So what's interesting, um, and and one of the reasons why it was um, for me uh, quite useful to actually review two different accounts of his downfall, is that there is some disagreement as to what the downfall was all about. So I'll start with the financial journalists who actually have done a huge amount of research on this and interviewed tons of people about this. And their account is that the healthcare funds that NACBI set up in order to invest in hospitals and various other healthcare infrastructures um, in Iraq had a huge amount of apparently investments from the Gates Foundation. We know that Bill Gates, is, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates' foundation at that stage, was investing quite a bit in healthcare in Africa and was very 
very involved in, in setting up various programs there. Now, of course, there are lo- loads of people that um, are critical of the ways in which the Gates Foundation priorities reshape African healthcare in ways that are not necessarily beneficial to Africans themselves and which don't necessarily address the most urgent healthcare issues there. And that uh, the Gates Foundation um, is crucially and centrally involved in the privatization of this public good there. Um, Setting all of that aside, a fund manager within the Gates Foundation actually notices that uh, some, some, this is the account that Clark and Louch tell us about the downfall of Narve, is that when this particular fund manager for the Gates Foundation begins to look into the numbers um, of Narve's healthcare funds, he notices that there is no necessary correlation between the amount that Narve's uh, private equity um, abroad claims to be investing and actual infrastructures being built there. So what Clark and Louch um, argue is that when more digging is done, it becomes clear that Narve is uh, lifting money out of the funds for his own personal expenditures, and that he is also overvaluing the values of his funds, which is considered to be fraudulent, it's considered to be conning your investors. Okay, so that's one story. The second story that Brian Bravati tells, and which um, is much more geopolitical rather than a story of, say, corruption or bad behavior or bad management, is that when Nakve invested in Karachi Electric, like any good private equity guy, he intended to get this this Karachi Electric to be uh, profitable. Uh, and he did this by slashing hundreds of workers. Uh, from the payrolls, thousands of workers from the payrolls of Karachi Electric, resulted in massive riots in Karachi, etc. But this was a sign of good management because obviously it turned Karachi Electric around to some extent. And at that point, Shanghai Electric wanted to come and buy Karachi Electric. And Brian Bravati claims that Shanghai Electric coming in to Pakistan at the height of CPEC, the relationship between China and Pakistan economic corridor, being established was against U.S. national interests and therefore the U.S. foiled this and the foiling of the sale of Karachi Electric meant that Nakvi's funds were bound up in something when he needed it and therefore this all resulted in the downfall of Nakvi's abroad. Now, the problem with both of these stories is that they take the facts as knowable they take uh, certain things as being evidence of good management, for example, slashing workers at Karachi Electric being evidence of good management. And they both understand that what the problem with the private equity was, was that the elements that that it's uh, funding uh, was tied up in particular places where it couldn't be spent. But the problem is with both of these stories is, of course, that the basis by which Narvi's work is judged is not what has happened to the little people, but rather what has happened to the investors. 
right? So that's the first thing. Uh, and whether that's fraud or not, whatever. The second thing is that um, Clark and Louch put a lot of, as, as well as obviously the US prosecutors that are going after Narve, uh, put a lot of stock by the fact that um, Narve overvalued his um, companies and his funds. Um, and, and, and that to me is really interesting because the overvaluation of your funds when everything is private, when there's no real proper audit, where even when you have a proper audit for a public company, you can fudge your numbers in such a way that values look higher than what they are, because you can, you can affect, you know, you can, you can change your impairment values, you can change your future values, you can change, I mean, so much of this valuation process is actually kind of a magic, if you will, or so much of it is actually, um, if we want to put it in a slightly more scientific sense, is what uh, Donald McKenzie, the great economic sociologist, calls that this process is more an engine, not a camera, that valuation doesn't take a picture of something, that it actually creates, feeds into it, feeds into that process. So if everyone agrees that something has a value, then it has that value. Then it has that value. That, but as soon as people start questioning that, that belief falls apart. Exactly. Falls apart. This is, I mean, you, this is this is good old Uncle Charlie's use value versus exchange value stuff, right? Um, so uh, so there's, there, there's an element of this that to me, I think needs to be better highlighted. Okay, so so let's say that this valuation process is is such that it appears that Narvi is overvaluing. This results in uh, charges of fraud being brought against him because people begin to withdraw their money out of the funds. He writes checks he cannot cash, and this actually is a very big deal in Dubai. His charges are brought for fraud for bounce checks uh, against him in Dubai, and charges of fraud are be- uh, brought against them in U.S. courts, which then you know results in extradition demands uh, to Britain, and uh, he is now in the final stages of an appeal against being sent to the U.S. Um, he's under house arrest, has you know posted a massive bail, had to sell this massive estate he had in the Cotswolds, Cotswolds or Oxfordshire in order to fund his uh, bail, um, and you know, and he's uh, living in his uh, really posh gated mansion flat in Knightsbridge awaiting to hear what is going to happen to him. I mean, is his downfall, his ongoing downfall, I mean, is that all grist to the mill of the the right-wing view of woke capital that... I think in a way it is grist to the mill of the racists that believe that uh, capitalists oversee are corrupt, whereas our capitalists are just hardworking and very good at what they do. That's, I think, one of the ways in which it's grist to the mill of baddies, if you will. Um, I think uh, the people that bang on about woke capital don't even know <laughs> most of the time what private equity is. And most of the time, they won't know who um, Arif Nakhvi was. Um, and yeah, okay, if you said to them that he was investing in healthcare funds in Africa, they would probably ask what sort of a fund it was and, you know, the, the, and take his do-gooding statements as evidence of his wokeness. But they wouldn't be necessarily 
necessarily opposed to making profits off of healthcare. So I think that this, you know, it's a kind of a complicated answer, but I do think that that's important to note. I do think it's really interesting because one of the things that Bravati briefly mentions, touches on, is that when um, Nahvi, Nahvi's abroad went up in flames, all of its various funds were broken up and they were actually bought up by other private equity firms based in the US and that they are actually doing um, good business then. I mean, I haven't followed this through. I haven't researched this claim to find out whether indeed like a KKR or whoever that came in and bought up some of these funds is actually making good money off of it. Um, but that is the claim that Bravati makes. So obviously it is the downfall of abroad has been a boon to its competitors. On this question of the, the investment in healthcare in, in Africa and elsewhere, I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, if, as it were, capitalism is the only game in town and the only sources of money are going to be Abraj Capital or Bill Gates Foundation, healthcare projects need money. If these are the only sources of money, it's better than not that they're investing. Okay, so I watch a lot of crap television. Uh, and uh, and I and which has a lot of ad- advertisement attached to it. And one of the things that I've noticed in the last uh, year or so is the extent to which private healthcare companies are advertising here in the UK, Benenden Health, whatever. And and the hook that they all use in their advertising is that the if you want to see a doctor within twenty four hours, you can. Um, and of course, we know that seeing your GP, your NHS GP, is within 24 hours is seeing them is almost an impossibility. You could potentially get a phone call from them, but you'd have to be at death's door um, or have some me- medical emergency in order to be able to see your GP. Now, the reason that that Benenden Health, and there were there are a number of them that, that do this advertising, um, can do this sort of thing, is because there has been a concerted policy um, uh, decision made by the Tories, uh, starting with the austerities of um, George Osborne more than a decade ago, to essentially not fund the necessary expansion of an NHS that needs to increasingly serve an increasingly ill population because the population profile as a whole is becoming older and therefore susceptible to more illnesses. They've just decided to not fund that expansion, in some ways just even holding the funding where it is and not cutting it, and there have been areas where they've cut it, but just holding the funding as it is, is essentially translates into an effective cut to the budget of the NHS. And so what you're doing is you're opening up a space for private healthcare in this. And I think that there has to be a recognition that a system predicated on private healthcare and private insurance is going to be a system like the US, where if you get cancer, you some if you don't have good healthcare, you're going to have to go online and do fundraising in, in small funds from friends and strangers in order to be able to pay for your cancer treatment. I mean, that's a horrifying, 
horrifying system, if you think about it. And I think that it, it, healthcare, for example, is a very, as I said, it's, it is a human right. It should be one that is publicly funded and that the profit motive, the calculation that goes into it should be taken out of it. I always found it really interesting that when in, that in the US, one of the arguments against use of a public health system was that, oh my God, NHS has a death panel. But in fact, what you've got is the death panel is in the US where where if and and the panel is simply determined by how much money you have or don't have or what you know how whether or not your insurance will cover something or not and i think that it's really important to acknowledge that now one of the other elements of this that i think is really important and i think it has to be mentioned is that um in post colonial africa there was a moment maybe for about 30, 40 years in the immediate um, aftermath of decolonization, where there was an effort by those countries that were coming out of, decolon uh, out of colonialism to establish public services, health, education, telecommunications, roads, other kinds of infrastructures that people need in order to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. There was an attempt to do so publicly, and that essentially was, that attempt was essentially wiped out. Um, why was it wiped out? Because we had, uh, you know, by the 1980s, the process of decolonization, political decolonization may have succeeded, but economic decolonization had not. That process essentially receded. Foreign capital uh, came and reinvested. Foreign capital eventually gave way to uh, local capitalists. And where public services were supposed to be publicly funded, whether that's public funding by your state or public funding by a public body outside, so let's say a World Bank that does public funding rather than private funding or just determines, you know, these kinds of neoliberal type investments. Let's say UNDP that would, for example, have funds or an investment bank that is public funding. All of that receded in favor of private, um, privately funded services, infrastructures. I'll give you one example that is often cited as some sort of a incredible triumph of business or private infrastructure. And that is that in the uh, entirety of the continent of Africa, people are now dependent on mobile phones for everything. In part, this has been because mobile infrastructure, mobile telephone, telephony infrastructure is much easier to establish than cabled infrastructures, right? It's, it's just you don't have to dig, you could just put up a mast and it works fine. And all of that was funded by private companies. And so Kenya, for example, was one of the first places where it was really, really easy for people to have uh, mobile phones. Now, mobile telephony meant that people were in touch. This is ostensibly a public good, right? But the problem is that, that uh, then that public good is utilized for all sorts of things, including, for example, mobile telephony banking, which creates enormous amounts of debt. Small loans turn into massive indebtedness. It also means that your private um, mobile company will have inordinate control over your infrastructure. Now, this is this is something that is that needs to be thought about a lot more carefully because internet is now as important to right as it's as important to utility for us as electricity or water and we know here in the UK where where water has been completely privatized we've got shit floating down the rivers we've got all of the uh, different water companies that are dumping water in the rivers and while 
environmental activists go swimming in the Seine or swimming in the Hudson River in New York, the, 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 the possibility of swimming in a, in a British river is like, which kind of waterborne disease do you want to uh, contract? And so... We know that public utilities cannot be left to private companies. Uh, internet cannot be only handed over to a virgin media or uh, to BT because they will gouge, they will price gouge if they can. Um, we know that if this is even true with apps because we have seen, for example, the, the extent to which Twitter, which used to be used for, for, for example, emergency services as a way of reaching out to their audiences if something was going wrong, has essentially been turned into a circus for blue-ticked right-wingers and has lost its utility, and I use that word um, intentionally, it has lost its utility as an emergency service uh, sort of information uh, provider. And I think that this, these are the kinds of reasons why certain goods on which we are absolutely dependent cannot be left to those who'd like to extract profit out of those goods. And I think that that's part of the argument that I'm trying to make. So it's not that corruption or bad management is at stake, although there is tons of that also to go around, but that fundamentally certain certain services, certain sectors absolutely should not be left to profit makers. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying earlier about the after decolonization or political decolonization in Africa, that the attempt to introduce new kinds of infrastructure, I mean, that's and what happened to people who tried to do that, for example, you know, talking to Kevin Ocos on this podcast not long ago, his piece in the LRB, if you look at Patrice Lumumba in Congo, who wanted to... Well, I hesitate to say he wanted to nationalise, but even but any idea any idea that the, the people of Congo had a right to the to the minerals that Belgian mining companies were extracting from their land, and Lumumba was was assassinated. Yeah, it is really fascinating for me. I, another example that I write about in my sinews book, which I think is really worth saying, is that now Lumumba was an anti-imperialist, like right, he was a lefty, but even with allies and clients, uh, the, the big European and American powers were stingy about the questions of development when they had control over those places, right? An example that I write about in my Sinews book is that um, Saudi Arabia had almost no roads to speak of, while Aramco, which was really basically in charge of the sort of infrastructure development in the country, while Aramco was an American-owned company. It essentially built some roads between the oil-producing region on the Gulf, so the Dammam and Dahran area, to Riyadh. Um, a, a road from Riyadh to Jeddah. A railway was built between the oil-producing areas and Riyadh. A railway was bandied about between Riyadh and Jeddah, never emerged. Really, if you actually look at the, there is an international body that tracks the number of miles of road each country has. It is astonishing to see that, you know, the number of miles was piddly for a country that was just huge and enormous, you know, the number of uh, miles of road that it had until it nationalized the oil. And then it had control over its own. And this is Saudi Arabia. It's not exactly, you know, some sort of a lefty um, icon of public good provision. The same 
was true of every single little emirate on the Gulf that the British had control of. Um, the United Arab Emirates had a single road between Sharjah and Abu Dhabi while the British were in charge of it and nothing else. And then as soon as, of course, the British gave their independence to these countries and oil was, uh, you know, the, the, some control over the oil incomes was recuperated by these little emirates, then a lot of roads were built. You see this, this happening again and again and again everywhere. And those developmental policies during colonization were essentially just uh, ways to extract um, uh, money out of uh, or extract cargo or extract um, uh, minerals out of these places. If there was infrastructure, uh, I mean, Walter Rodney writes about this in Africa, where he says all of the railways led to the ports and they avoided the large cities because most of the time where the, what the railways were built for was to go from the mining areas to the port to carry uh, copper or uh, iron ore or coal or whatever else it was that was being extracted to the ports to be shipped elsewhere. And so I think that that process uh, was for a very brief time challenged, if not necessarily reversed in the moment of decolonization. But then already in the 1950s, Nkrumah of Ghana was writing about neocolonialism and the control of of foreign European, formerly colonial capital, over the same infrastructures, over the same businesses. And we see a re-instantiation, reconsolidation, strengthening of that control of the foreign capital over developmental policies of these places. And We've also seen this sort of a shift from the bigger sort of international funding bodies, uh, investment banks, uh, etc., from thinking that things should be publicly funded to public-private partnerships, or better yet, bring in foreign capital to do whatever they want to do, because you know making money is better for everybody, according to them. Yeah. I mean that question of the railways being built in order to export extracted um minerals i mean that's true in wales as well that you that the railways in wales were taking coal from the mines yeah. to the ports and actually if you want to get a train even now from south wales to north wales you have to you have to go through england and then that question of uh, extracting resources I and mean, i think i was seeing something that the price of uranium in niger since the coup that france used to buy I say buy. But France used to get um, uranium at a discount from Niger. At, yeah, at a discount, shall we say? And the, I mean, how much of the how much has it has it gone up by? I mean, obviously there are other factors as well, but uh, you know that a country supposedly has its independence, and yet, yeah, I mean, there's a whole series of policies that are in the bundle of developmental programs for the countries of the global south that are essentially ways to uh, continually embed them in the system of extraction and to give unfair advantage to the former colonial masters. I think Niger actually is a really good example. I mean, there are so many of different, um, uh, the, the Frank zone, essentially, in West Africa, which are the former colonies, which are bound to France and support its uh, currency by essentially by establishing certain uh, financial institutions 
that cannot separate themselves also means that developmental policies in those places are very much subject to the kind of monetary policies that are that are established because they're directed from Paris itself. It's a little bit like all of the oil money that was being produced by the countries in the Gulf and elsewhere in the 1950s and 60s, supporting the sterling um, at a cost to those countries themselves. So in a way, the way that the currencies in these places are set up, the way that the banks, the central banks in these places are set up, um, uh, former colonies are set up. And then the, and then developmental policies, even by well-meaning, even by left-wing uh, developmentalists, run into problems of uh, who does it benefit? What sorts of rules are put into place that allows for that money to be, to, to be dispersed? What sorts of conditionalities go into the expenditure of that money? And, you know, and, and so that, that, that those kinds of conditions around the question of development also means that we don't, uh, you know, the, there's a huge sort of uh, discursive uh, and political impetus to uh, economically develop parts of the world that are in poverty or that are, that are suffering from massive uh, deprivation in, in social goods or social benefits. And yet the developmental policies often benefit a very thin sliver of folks there and further embed the majority of the population in relations of debt or exploitation. And I think that that's one of the things that um, I think I'm, I'm coming at. And I'm, again, here exaggerating, caricaturing a little bit all of development po policies. But I do think that a lot of the top-down developmental policies tend to have that effect. I mean, you write in the piece that the from the start, the development finance industry resembled the US military, which is quite a... <laughs> striking thing to read. Could you elaborate on that a bit? I mean, one of the things that really struck me uh, was how many acronyms there were. And one of the things that I learned when I was writing my book on counterinsurgency about 15 years ago now, was that when people use acronyms, and when you are dependent on knowing what the acronyms are and what the acronyms mean and how they function, uh, it is often uh, because somebody is trying to hide something. The acronym hides something. It is, uh, it's not just some m mode of simplifying, uh, shortening. It is also a way of cloaking what is at stake. So a lot of the investment agencies do the same thing. There's, they are massive bureaucracies, again, like the U.S. military. Uh, they are fragmented, again, like the U.S. military. One, one part doesn't know what the other part is doing. Uh, they are, uh, they, they are top-heavy in certain ways, in, the, uh, in, in financial sense, meaning that certain centers um, have a huge amount of money flowing through them, whereas the, the people at the bottom of the pyramid tend not to have that much resource forces allocated to them, again, like the US military. There is a huge uh, sort of um, ideological uh, drive towards privatization, again, like the US military. And then there is, of course, the convergence between developmental and military activities in the 1960s onwards, where the idea of counterinsurgency or pacification came to absorb a lot of developmental policies. I mean, this was, of course, much older when the, when the French were colonizing places like Indochina 
China or Madagascar, um, they believed in setting up what did what would they say roads, um, schools, and markets because roads, schools, and markets were the trinity of development, and it was also the way in which you incorporated, absorbed, and co-opted local populations into your counterinsurgency or pacification plans. And so you you find that those the the roads, markets, and schools element also appears in U.S. counterinsurgency. So there are those convergences also between developmental policy and military policy. Um, And I think that that to me was the fact that there's so much structural similarity between these um, is was was uh, for me something really interesting. And it was a bit of a throwaway comment. But the more I have thought about it since I wrote that piece, the more I've thought, well, actually, there's probably something to it that there is, in some ways, developmental policies on the one hand, and sort of the coercive arms of uh, the US and NATO states on the other hand, are that sort of the two arms of capital, one is coercive, one is hegemonic. That's how they function together. And and, um, essentially that that between the pincer um, of coercion and development, you know, is called everybody else in the world. And you, I mean, you mentioned in the piece, well, we've talked about Congo already, but you mentioned in the piece also that Guatemala, uh, Iran and Chile, that countries which had democratically elected socialist leaders who wanted to nationalise their natural resources, who were overthrown in coups that were supported by by the CIA and by the US in order prote- to protect the interests of private capital international capital private capital yeah I mean, I think that's really, really important to recognize is that sovereignty over uh, resources has been uh, the biggest bone of contention between the former colonial masters and the decolonizing states um, in the 20th century and since. Um, I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of the mechanisms that were established by international institutions uh, in order to sort of put the put their finger on the scale on behalf of private capital, everything from uh, state investor dispute manage, uh, uh, mechanisms to arbitration mechanisms, everything was in intended to protect private capital. And where those kinds of legal mechanisms failed, then coup d'etats were very successful um, in a number of different places. In almost every instance in the mid-20th century where you see a coup d'etat happening, there is some element of uh, demand to nationalize the economy or to have some sort of a sovereign control over the economy. Um, and, And that is that was pretty much the the rule of of uh, the, the control of capital in the 20th century, and I suspect continuing on into the 21st. I mean, you say in the piece that the the debate about the balance of private and public investment in the global south has been settled in favour of private capital, and not only in the global south, right? I mean, as you've already talked about the privatisation of utilities in the UK, and again, so called public private partnerships. Are, I mean, they're the norm now and have been since New Labour and possibly actually before that, since you know the major government in the 90s in health and education infrastructure. Although that, I mean, the question of the of where the money comes from is, I mean, something we haven't talked about yet is the amount of public money that gets funneled into private companies and the way that, I mean, you say in, in the piece, the question of that the risk is, the profit is private and the, and the risk is public, that we see it with the rail companies in the UK, that they get huge subsidies from the government and they make profits. And <laughs> and the trains don't run on time. So, 
I mean, I think that that's really important because I think that, uh, and, and Brett Christopher's book really touches on that, in particular in the context of the UK, where, you know, uh, infrastructures, um, the huge amounts of public investment goes into them. Uh, the private companies extract money and then often the infrastructures fail. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I lived in Scotland in the 2000s and I remember that some of the fun, uh, some of the schools funded by, the, by New Labour under public-private partnership arrangements actually had to be shut within 10 years because the, because their buildings were falling apart. So I think that that, that kind of, you know, the, uh, the profits are privatized and the risk is made public is one element of this. Just today, Bloomberg had published a long read, which was absolutely fascinating, which was about what they called zombie private equity. So companies that set up private equity firms that um, take a lot of funds and then dump their money into ventures um, that then they doesn't matter how much they cut to the bone or how much they disassemble it, they can't make money off of it. And then they funds that put money into those private equity companies have to, at a discount, withdraw their monies. Uh, so essentially at a loss to us, often because these are pension funds. And it was really interesting for me to see these, uh, to, to see the Bloomberg write about these zombie private equity, and then to see who the biggest uh, funders were, who were putting money in these. And it was like North Carolina state pensions or California, you know, teachers state, state pensions and things like that. And so I think it is, you know, it's it, not only is the profit privatized, because I bet the private equity guys who were running this were making huge amounts of money and live in really lovely places in uh, Manhattan and have, you know, a summer house in the Hamptons. Um, but that even, uh, but, but in, in instances where they are absolutely and utterly incompetent, also, the big funders, which are, you know, the, the pension companies have to eat the loss, which means we have to eat the loss. So, uh, I think to me, that's really fascinating. And there's so little regulation of this. And now we're seeing, uh, again, another thing that is, Bloomberg is really fabulous to read because of everything that you're seeing that, you know, that they, they publish. Uh, wasn't it Chomsky or somebody who said that if they're providing news to the capitalists, their news is going to be actually reliable and dependent. And it's absolutely right. One of the other things that is really interesting to see is that apparently there is now something called private debt or private banking. And, and this is like private investments where there's again a little very little scrutiny and god knows what sorts of monies these uh you know investments are being made into and then the failure of some of these investments uh, some of these banks probably is going to result into them being whatever too big to fail and therefore being rescued by taxpayer money i mean it's again and again the same sorts of stuff that we see happening and a lack of regulation and a kind of a uh almost religious belief that somehow private capital is going to be efficient and better functioning and doing better. And it is a religious faith in this. It's, it's, there's nothing that actually bears it out other than the fact that the people that are promoting it are the ones that are making huge and rich profits off of it. Um, it is is really resulting in uh, the devastation of the public landscape uh, in the global south, but also in the global north where we live. I mean, the arrival of private money in, in education and health and so on. The chair that you hold yep. at Exeter University is endowed by the Al-Qasimi 
Sheikh of Sharjah. Yeah, it is. And it is actually, uh, yeah, it is, it's as much as I am happy to bear the name, I'm supposed to say that, I guess. It is very problematic to have uh, chairs that are, it's very American style, actually, where chairs are endowed by foreign donors. And if you think about it, part of, um, uh, I mean, I have to also mention this, that thankfully, the Conditions of the endowment where the Qasimis put money in uh, are such that the chair and the department is essentially got a firewall around it, which means that the donor cannot dictate the terms of what happens. And I have absolutely no problem criticizing um, any of the royal families in the Gulf. But I think it is also really worth mentioning that the withdrawal of funding and in an increasing imposition, a kind of a business mentality on the job of education has translated into uh, universities scrambling to get money from everybody, uh, from, you know, sort of potentates sitting on a bank of cash uh, to oil companies that are trying to greenwash their reputations through things like funding carbon capture and other kind of bullshit technologies that haven't happened yet just so that they could claim to be doing things that are green or moving towards net zero. And so I think that is also, this is part of the whole same process by which by withdrawal of public funding from things that are supposed to be public goods and publicly available to the vast majority of the people, if they so choose to take, or at least all people, if they so choose to take, if they choose to take partake of it, by withdrawal of that public funding, what we're doing is we're opening up space for private funding to um, in- interfere, and and some um, some universities may not be as scrupulous about putting in that protective insular insulation around our research or academic freedom some some universities will will be inevitably much more vulnerable to pressure from the donors and i think that that's really horrifying if you think about it lale khalili thank you very much my pleasure you can read lale's latest piece in the 7th of september issue of the lrb or in the paper's online archive next week on the podcast i'll be talking to rosemary hill about mount vesuvius so please join us for that the LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening. Thank you.